0: Sunday of Advent, I invite you to open your Bibles to perhaps the most familiar passage in Scripture related to the Nativity, and that is Luke chapter 2, a story with which you'll be familiar, if only from the Charlie Brown Christmas special and Linus explaining what Christmas is all about. If you're not familiar with that, we'll pray for you. Luke chapter 2, we'll be reading the first 21 verses. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, placed him in a manger because there was no no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, "Do not be afraid. I bring you good news. When it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Father, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I am keenly aware of the reason that you sent your Son. Lord, as we celebrate this season of Advent, of His coming. And we talk so much about the joys of Christmas. Help us not to forget that the reason Christmas exists, the reason for the advent of Christ, is because we are a race in rebellion against you. And every single one of us is guilty under your law. Father, remind us that apart from you, we are spiritually dead. And so you sent the promised Redeemer to save us, to rescue us, to deliver us from the bondage of our sin. To set right what we have destroyed. That we might, for the first time, be able to live out the purpose for which we were born. To bring glory and honor to you. And to enjoy intimacy with you forever. Lord, as we think about these things We confess to you that we are not without sin, even here, now, today, as we gather for worship. Who can know their hidden faults? Father, forgive us for our sins of ignorance, our sins of neglect, the things we're not even aware of, as we turn from you to our own way, just out of habit and ignorance. Lord, save us also from those willful sins, those areas where we know, we know, that we are choosing wrong, we are thinking wrong thoughts, we are desiring things that are contrary to your desire. That we are living in a way that is anything but pleasing to you. So often, Lord, we're not even concerned, we're not even thinking about pleasing You, but only living for our own urges. You have promised that when we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all the unrighteousness with which they have stained us. We rest in that promise, Lord. We thank you for the wondrous mystery of your Son, your very manifestation wrapped in human flesh, that he emptied himself to become one of us, setting aside everything that is magisterial, About his divinity. So that he in his perfect deity did not grasp or cling to it. But humbled himself becoming a servant even to the point of death on a cross for us. Lord, as we think about these things that happened so long ago in Bethlehem and we, we hear the story and we rejoice with the shepherds and we feel all of the, the nostalgic things that this season brings to us, and we see the nativity scenes in our homes. Remind us that this was your plan from the beginning. That this baby in the manger was the ruler whose origins were from of old, the serpent crusher that you promised in the garden, and teach us to worship him. Bless now our time, Father. Open our hearts and our minds that we would see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. Speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue that my frailty might never stand as a stumbling block. Speak to us by your Spirit and receive all the glory and honor today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we uh, continue looking into God's Word, I would invite you just to turn back to the book of Micah. We're going to go to the the back part of the Old Testament, so back up past Matthew. The books are kind of small in there. That's why we call them the minor prophets. They didn't write big books, and I cannot lie. They wrote small books with big meanings. As we look at Micah, our memory verse comes from chapter 5, verse 2. So I'd invite you to turn there, Micah 5. Micah is writing... In a time when Israel has found prosperity apart from the Lord. And the Lord is bringing judgment. And the prophet says that this judgment will come against the wicked, but God will not fail to bring the Redeemer that He has promised. Micah 5, starting with verse 1, we'll just read the first verse. Oh, four or five verses. The prophet writes, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. This is the judgment that is to come. Israel will be overcome by its enemies and sent into exile in Assyria. But you, Bethlehem Ephratha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now we could spend our whole sermon time on this passage, and we won't, but I just want to draw our attention to the fact that God has promised in advance what he would do Deliver his people. It's not new. It wasn't surprising to them. When it becomes surprising is when we pursue our own thinking rather than God's word. And so, God, having pronounced his curse on humankind because of sin, the brokenness of our world, everything that we observe comes because sin is present. Now, He pulls out from the world that has rejected him, a people to be his own. From the line of Abraham, he develops this nation, Israel. And Israel rejects him. They want to be like everybody else. Sounds so familiar, feels so familiar to my own heart. So they pursue their way. They pursue wealth and prosperity the same way everybody else does. And justice goes by the wayside. But it isn't the justice itself that is the problem. The the injustice comes when they depart from the God of justice. When they stop living according to the word Now, those of us who are familiar with the New Testament recognize that the law was never going to save them anyway. Amen? It wasn't even given for that. It was given to teach us, to show us just how far short we fall of God's glory. There was never a time since sin entered the garden, that we could be saved by ourselves. We always needed a Redeemer, a Rescuer to come. The serpent crusher of Genesis 3.15. When God said the serpent would strike his heel, but the one to come would crush his head. And in Micah, chapter 5, in the midst of Israel doing their thing, not paying attention to God, God speaks His word through the prophet to say, Yes, you will be abandoned for a time. You will be judged, but I'm not done. Because the one that I promised will come. And not in the way that you expect, You want the big glorious king like everybody else. You want the strong army like everybody else. You want the horses and chariots and wives and wealth and all the things. All the things. But I'm going to send him through a sheep town. This little burg, this little rural place that's too small to even be considered among the clans of Judah in Bethlehem. God using this small, ordinary, boring town. And those of you who have spent your lives in a small town like me, you can understand. We've got a lot of boring that goes on. Praise God I wouldn't trade it. I've been to the city, I'll stay here. God uses this boring little small town to do the most amazing thing that has ever happened since He created the world. God put on flesh. He loved us so much that He sent His one and only Son, whom He had promised from of old, to be the ruler who would do what Adam was supposed to do and failed. What the kings of Israel were supposed to do and failed what you and I are supposed to do, and fail. And that is to represent Him in the world with holiness and justice for His glory. But this one, this one who comes to Bethlehem from heaven to earth in this podunk town, would be the ruler he promised. Now, with that in mind, I just want to draw our attention to the song that we just sang, O Little Town of Bethlehem. That song was first set to music and sung in 1868. And both the the, uh, composer of the music and the writer of the lyrics Uh, Didn't really think it would be performed beyond that Christmas in their Sunday school that they had written it for. But it appears to have been inspired in 1865 when Reverend Phillips Brooks visited Bethlehem and was struck by the quiet little town on Christmas Eve, pondering how oblivious everyone would have been to the glory in their midst. Now, as an American, in 1865, surely this picture, this pastoral scene, as he contemplates on Christmas Eve what would have happened on that first Christmas Eve, if you will, had to have been powerfully juxtaposed in his mind with the recent end of the Civil War and the assassination of President Lincoln. Such massive... Obviously remarkable events, starkly contrasted with the rather mundane and sleepy town of Bethlehem, this little sheep town, seems to have awakened in Brooks an awareness of the very thing that we see in the core reality of today's text. Our core reality is God uses the mundane and the remarkable to bring about his amazing plan of redemption. God uses the mundane and the remarkable to bring about his amazing plan of redemption. Now, back to Luke chapter 2, as you see this, I fear sometimes that when we are abundantly familiar with a text, sometimes the old saying is true that Familiarity breeds contempt, or at least neglect. And we fail to enter into it when we read it. Has that been your experience at times as you've read the Bible? You get to a, a thing that you've maybe heard since you were a child, and, and you stop being in awe of it. You read it, you've heard it, and the words hit you the way they've always hit you. And you miss some of the surprise that's built into the text. Some of the wonder with which we should understand it. There are are three main things I want us to be able to, to pick up from this story. We see them in the events that unfold, but they're really principles that we can draw from as we move forward with it. First, notice this. In God's sovereign plans, there are no random things. All right? Let's jot that down. In God's sovereign plans, there are no random things. Take a look at the first portion of the passage here in Luke 2. In the first seven verses, what we see is a government event that takes place a long way from where they are that brings the Holy Family to Bethlehem. Let's read it again. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And he gives this parenthetical thought that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Now notice what's happening here. Maybe you can identify with the government expecting, demanding, mandating things that you may or may not be comfortable with. Maybe we can still today relate to having censuses, to having to pay taxes, to having the government say, this is what you will do and what you will not do. And here, this strange thing why in the world would would Luke as he's giving an account of Christ tell us about a government census well because that's what led these people to go to their own town to register notice picking up with verse 4 so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem the town of David Why? Because he belonged to the house and line of David. So Joseph, you know Jesus' adopted father, because his daddy was God, right? Joseph comes from the line of royal rulers in Israel, specifically in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And just as God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7, that one from his line would always be ruler over Israel, looking forward to the Messiah in that forever king, God kept his promise in that Davidic covenant through all these generations, from (coughs) Boaz and Obed and Jesse and David all through the ages, to come to this place, where this obscure, unknown carpenter, from Nazareth, a town of kind of rough reputation, it's not really thought of as some great place, in a region that's called Galilee of the Gentiles, it's a heavily Gentile area, not respected, by Jews and Israelites, he's of David's line. And the emperor, knowing nothing of any of this, does what God intends and moves them. The emperor doesn't know who Joseph is. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't care. He's a pagan. And his census causes them to do exactly what God had already ordained from before time began. The origins of this ruler are ancient from of old. And now this promise is kept through a government census. God does amazing, sovereign things. What do I mean by sovereign? Sovereign means he has the authority to do whatever he wants. There is no part of any, any piece of human history that is outside of God's hand. Now that brings a lot of questions, maybe for some of us more questions than answers, but the bottom line is that God is the boss. You can reject that or you can rebel against that, but one way or another in the end we will all find out how it plays out. In God's sovereign plans, there are no random things. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Because he belonged to the house and line of David. Verse 5, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now that might not hit you the same way today as it would have hit them then, right? It's it's pretty normal for us in our society to have children and not be married. That's that's not even new. Some of you, if you're a little bit older, maybe you remember a time when that was a scandal. But now people plan for it. It's just not even a thing. But at that time, among the people of God, where the law in the Old Testament called for stoning in adultery and fornication. This is a pretty big deal. Because family and sexuality and marriage is designed to give us a picture of God, and when we get it wrong, we blaspheme him. We distort the image of God, we run him down when we live with an unholy approach to sexuality, marriage, and family. And Luke just says, Yep, she's with child. They're expecting, they're betrothed, not married yet, and she goes with him for this census. Don't miss out on the fact that there's a sense of commitment there that perhaps is also foreign to us today. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. This picture, baby in a manger, right? They're in this, supposedly in a stable. We talk about that. It doesn't mention a stable, but that's a presumed thing that they're in some sort of a stable. There's a feeding trough there. That's what a manger is. Don't have a room for them, so I'm going to put the baby in there. By the way, if you have not, Shelley mentioned earlier the, the um the Advent devotional booklet that uh, was put together this week. Definitely pick it up. Check those out. Already starting out with a bang. The first three or four here, uh, I haven't read today's, but, but the first three or four are just astonishing to me uh, how well written they are. As we picture putting a baby to bed in a cow feeder, God uses these mundane, ordinary things to do something great and it's not random. In fact, he uses this manger in a few verses later to be the the calling card, the identity for which the shepherds find him. Now I see that I'm progressing far too slowly so I'm going to have to pick this up. I can't spend as much time on the rest of this. In God's sovereign plans, there are no random things. Notice this. God is working all things together for the glory of His name and the good of His people. God is working all things together for the glory of His name and the good of His people. We're all familiar, hopefully, with Romans 8.28. That God works all things together for the good. doesn't say all things are good, but God works all things, good, bad, and ugly, together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. All of this for His glory. Everything that happens, good, bad, and ugly, for God's glory and the ultimate good of His people. A government census called by a pagan emperor far away might seem on the surface to have nothing to do with a young couple in Judea or Galilee or of Israel's promised Messiah or of anything having to do with the holy God. Yet it was exactly what God had ordained to bring about His amazing plan of redemption. Just as we saw last week, In the way God demonstrated and orchestrated His glorious plan of redemption through His grace in the everyday circumstances of a destitute widow and her destitute daughter-in-law, nothing is random in the hand of our sovereign God. Nothing is wasted. God is working all things together for the glory of His name and the good of His people because in God's sovereign plans, there are no random things notice this, if God has our attention, there are no mundane things. If God has our attention, there are no mundane things. Now, when you go to work every day, you probably go there because that's what you do, right? You don't think about, man, I can't wait to get to work. Something amazing is going to happen. When I, when I go pick those kids up on that bus, or when I go punch the clock at the shop, or or when I check in, I've got a plan, I've got a vision of what I think I'm going to do. If I'm a a veterinarian, maybe I've got a surgery scheduled. If I'm a teacher, I've got a plan, I'm going to shape these kids in this way. But, sometimes, your plans get thrown out when God breaks in. Because he's got something far more extraordinary planned for you. If God has our attention, there are no mundane things. Look at verses 8 to 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. That's what they did, right? They're just clocking in. In my mind, maybe maybe I'm strange, not maybe, but ride with me here. How many of you remember the, the Looney Tunes cartoons with the, the sheepdog and the wolf, you know, Ralph and Fred, and they're checking in, the sheepdog's there doing the job? You all know, right? Yeah. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Amen. All right? So the sheepdog's there, and they, you know, they can't see and all this kind of stuff, and they clock in, they clock out, and they're buddies when they get off, and then they fight when they're there. I'm, I'm picturing that, right? Those are these shepherds. They're checked in because they're watching the sheep just pulling their shift. Just normal. And then something amazing happens. Now maybe my life is too animated because I'm, as I'm saying this, just as I said those words, I'm thinking of the Incredibles. When Mr. Incredible comes out in the driveway in a bad mood and says, what are you waiting for, kid? He says, I don't know, something amazing, I guess. Maybe we should be waiting for something amazing too. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, before anything else happens, you show up to work. (laughs) You're sitting in your office chair typing on the computer, and an angel shows up in the office. What else matters? Whatever was on your agenda before kind of just got bumped, right? I'm sorry, Mr. Angel, I got a deadline here. I got to finish this up. Can we talk later? Let's let's get an appointment for next Tuesday, perhaps. Because I'm really busy right now. In the middle of their regular, ordinary lives, an angel shows up. Notice what happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, you may... Be familiar with the the term Shekinah, referring to the Old Testament glory, a manifestation of God. And when the glory of God is referenced in Scripture, whenever we see this, there is a manifestation of light. From Genesis to Revelation, we see God speaking the light. We see God being the light of the city in Revelation. All throughout the Scripture, God's glory is represented by light and power And here we see no difference. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And as you might expect, they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Yeah, right. If you say so. But, you know, you're kind of like glowing and on fire. And, uh, you know, having a hard time with the don't be afraid part. Don't be afraid because. Don't be afraid, I bring you good news. I didn't come here to destroy you. Which would be the natural thought anytime we encounter God or a messenger of God and His holiness is set in contrast to our unholiness. Think of Isaiah in his book, chapter 6, when he says, I am undone, woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm a dead man because I'm a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen God. That's got to be the feeling these shepherds have, right? I'm just pulling my shift, just watching the sheep, trying to make sure the coyotes and wolves don't show up. And now God is going to send this glowing being, I'm dead. Don't be afraid. I'm not coming to judge and destroy you. I'm bringing you good news that will cause great joy, not just for you, shepherds in Israel, shepherds tending the flocks for the sheep that will be used in the sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem, not just for you insiders. I'm bringing good news for all of them folk. All of those outsiders, those others, those Gentiles. Well, wait a minute, we're shepherds. The the regular folks in town don't think very highly of us anyway. Even as Jews, we're kind of outsiders. This message would hit them pretty well. Good news, they'll be causing great joy for all the people today in the town of David remember that promise 2 Samuel 7 in the town of David a savior has been born to you he is the Messiah the Christ the Lord Lord is master ruler isn't that exactly what we just read in Micah the ruler will come out of tiny little Bethlehem whose origins are from of old. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths. Not surprising, that's what you would do. Swaddling the baby, typical. It's not the swaddling that's the sign. It's that this baby wrapped in cloths is in a cow feeder. Lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God. God. One angel, huge. You're talking about lighting up the sky. A great company, not a not a little band. A great company of the heavenly host. Elsewhere, that's rendered the armies of heaven. Same same phrase in other places. The armies of heaven show up. Now it just just let's dial it back a little bit. Right. I went down to visit my son at. at... Uh, the Army Post, where, where he lives in Georgia, and got to see uh, the, the big vehicles, and they didn't have any tanks out where we were, but they, you know, every, we'd be driving, and there's a tank crossing, right? Like, wait, we have deer crossing. A tank coming across? So if somebody delivers you a message, and it's an important person, somebody in a uniform shows up at your door and says, I have a message. Whoa, this is kind of official. Now picture that person showing up with unit upon unit of military personnel in their full garb with the tanks to help deliver this message. I'm having a hard time hearing the message right now because I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, do not be afraid makes a lot of sense. This great company, of the heavenly host, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. In Latin, gloria in excelsis Deo. When you sing those words, when you sing these Christmas songs, let them sink into your mind and heart. It's a song of worship. We are singing with the angels, glory to God in the highest and he goes on, they go on to say, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. We live in a world without peace. And yet, the Lord has made peace for those who will receive him by faith. If God has our attention, there are no mundane things. Hanging out in a pasture watching sheep, pretty mundane. Until you give God your full attention. Now, everything changes. Mark this down God's glory makes the ordinary extraordinary. God's glory makes the ordinary extraordinary. A donkey saving a charlatan prophet. Just a donkey. God has this donkey stop. And his his owner beats him because the donkey is not obeying. Turns out there's an angel ready to slay this charlatan prophet Balaam. And the donkey is saving him. Ordinary things God does something extraordinary with it. A shepherd in Judah turned prophet of Israel, the prophet Amos. He's just a farmer, a shepherd who also tends fig trees. And God calls him from Judah to go up to the northern kingdom. They kind of look down on Judah a little bit. So these are divided kingdoms. It's supposed to be one. Now there's animosity between them. And he goes to Israel, to the north, to bring the word of God in judging them. Ordinary stuff. God does the extraordinary. You may be familiar with the time when Jesus took a boy's lunch I'm sure his mama wasn't thinking about anything extraordinary when she packed it for him. Here's a little peanut butter and jelly, or in his case, fishes and loaves of bread. Jesus didn't need anybody's lunch. He created the entire universe. He didn't need the fishes and bread. But he took what was ordinary, and he made it extraordinary. Extraordinary. That's what God does. How about this? For the sake of time, I won't have you turn there, but jot down 2 Kings 5. 2 Kings 5, verses 8 to 15. An important general by the name of Naaman, long story short, ends up with leprosy, finds himself before the prophet of God in Israel. He's from a warrior uh, a, a warrior nation or clan uh, outside of Israel. He sent the king of Aram, sends him to Israel. He ends up before the prophet Elisha and Elisha says, I want you to go and dip in the Jordan. Go take a bath. You're going to do this seven times. Naaman's ticked. It's like, seriously, we got better rivers where we're from. This, you know, this, this is like a little creek. What, what's going on? Or creek for those of you not from Michigan. So the this little, this little crick, this little muddy thing. I'm supposed to go take a bath in this stupid little stream. And his servants say, look, he asked you to do this little small thing, this ordinary, boring little thing. If he would asked you to do some fantastic thing to pay a lot of money or to sacrifice a bunch of animals or, or, or to, to whatever, stand on your head for five days, wouldn't you have done that? So he does it. And he comes up out of the water clean of leprosy. Just so you know, that's not how medicine works. That's not how leprosy works. Crick water doesn't cure leprosy. If anything, you know, get some leeches on you or something. But that's not what happens. God uses these ordinary things, and his glory makes the ordinary extraordinary. Ordinary or common in the Bible is used in contrast to that which is holy or sacred. It's the everyday stuff of life. Holy or sacred is that which is specially set apart for God. The shepherds are just doing what they always do. Nothing especially special. I wonder how many of them were thinking, man, I can't wait for my shift to get over. There's just just another boring night out in the pastures. Then God breaks in and the sky breaks open and the angels break into this extraordinary proclamation. What is it that made this particular night extraordinary? It was the glory of the Lord. In this mundane moment, God got their attention and what was ordinary became holy God made it holy and set apart to himself. Colossians 3 tells us to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. In other words, set your attention on God and his purposes. Do everything in Jesus' name for God's glory and watch the ordinary things of life, now sanctified and set apart for him, become extraordinary, sacred, And amazing. Mark this down. When the word of God is received, there are no disappointing things. When the word of God is received, there are no disappointing things. Picking up with verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go into Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened they're in these fields outside of Bethlehem they're going to go into the town let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about notice as they say this they're not saying eh, let's go see the angels telling the truth let's go see this thing that has happened that the Lord has told us about they received God's word here So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned. I think this, by the way, is probably the pivotal verse of this passage. Verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told on the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he was conceived when the word of God is received there are no disappointing things notice that these shepherds didn't merely hear the message they received it they took it in took it to heart and took it to town They accepted God's word as true, so they acted on it. When they did, they found it to be exactly as promised, and they were overjoyed. Notice it's not that they believed in God. They already believed in God. Most people believe in God. We have to talk ourselves into atheism. It's our natural state to believe that there is something bigger and higher. This isn't about them believing in God nor is any part of reality about you believing in God. The question is, will you believe God? Will you believe that He is who He reveals Himself to be? Not just that He exists, but that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Do you believe, will you believe, that when God says something, He does it? When he says you are cursed under the law, but I'm offering you grace in my son. Do you believe that? And do you believe it enough to act on it? When they did, they found exactly what God said to be true. And they rejoiced. And they couldn't keep it inside. Romans 5.5 tells us that hope doesn't Disappoint us or let us down because God through His Holy Spirit has poured out His love into our hearts. Hope in the Lord can never let us down. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When God gives, it's good. Always. Always just prior to this in Luke 1.37 the angel Gabriel says to Mary as he's describing to her the child that will be born and she's a little bit flabbergasted because as a young woman who has not participated in the things that lead to conception she's like, how's that going to happen? He says the Holy Spirit is going to conceive this child in you. This will be God's child. In the NIV, here it says, for no word of God can ever fail. You may be more familiar with the more common rendering, that nothing will be impossible with God. In the Amplified, it says that nothing is or ever shall be impossible with God. Your hope in God will never let you down when your hope Is based on his word, not your made up conception, the God you created in your image to do your bidding like a genie in a bottle, but the God who is, who was, and ever shall be, never changing, the self revealing God who has described himself and given us an understanding of his will, his character, his heart. Not only in nature, but in the written word that we have before us. That God. When your hope is in His promises, they will never let you down. Notice this. What God promises, God performs. What God promises, God performs. God had promised a savior, a serpent crusher to overcome sin for his image bearers ever since Genesis 3. He reiterated that promise over and over through the ages. And now, through mundane and remarkable events, he brought all of history to Bethlehem to bring about his amazing plan of redemption. When God says it, God does it. You can count on it any word from the Lord is as settled as if it had already happened. When the shepherds investigated the things they had been told, they accepted it by faith. They accepted it as true before they saw it. But they still investigated it. Reasoned faith, unafraid to dig and discover and wrestle. This is what we're called to. Not faith that is blind, but faith that has seen the evidence of God, that accepts God at His word before I see Him do what He says. Willing to dig in. They believed and then they investigated and they found that the evidence bore out the reality they had already received by faith. God said it. God did it. They believed it, then they saw it, and they praised God for it, telling everyone around. When we receive the Word of God as the Word of God. Let me say that again. When we receive the Word of God as the Word of God, not just hearing it as another thing as some religious concept that we aspire to, but when we recognize God's Word as actually being spoken, breathed out by Him, it will never let us down. God's promises are the source of our strength, our hope, and our joy. Receiving God's Word by faith means believing that God is telling the truth to the extent that we act on that belief before we see it so that when we test it, we find that it is just as we were told, and our joy overflows. As we wrap this up, there's so much more that I would like to say. I'm going to trust that God's going to say it better than I will by His Holy Spirit. A long time ago, God sovereignly ordained mundane, ordinary, apparently random events to bring about his remarkable, amazing, perfect plan to save his people from our sins. He used a boring little rural town like Bethlehem, the house of bread, that's what Bethlehem means, to bring the bread of life to us. The town of David, to bring the perfect ruler from David's line, just as he had promised long before. He loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son, so that whoever received his son by faith would be brought from spiritual death and eternal condemnation to eternal life as his redeemed, accepted, loved children. When the appointed time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman under the law to redeem people like us, sinners condemned under the law, so that we might have adoption To the full standing of Jesus Himself. Let me say, if you have not yet received Jesus as your Redeemer, Savior, and Master by faith, don't wait. Don't wait. You don't know what tomorrow holds, you don't know what the next moments hold. The last two years, if nothing else, ought to teach us that. Trust Him now. It's as simple as crying out from your heart, Lord, I'm yours, save me, and turning from your own way to give him the run of your life. If you're ready to do that today, I'd love to walk you through it. I'd love to help you on your path to a life of obedient faith, life, and growth. Come see me afterwards. If you're already united to Christ by faith, then by all means make sure That you're giving him your full attention. Let him make your common things holy, your ordinary life extraordinary, as you set yourself apart to him and live for his glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the knowledge that no matter what we are dealing with no matter what we are facing in our everyday that you use both the mundane everyday things and the remarkable miraculous amazing things to bring about your amazing plan of redemption Father because there are no random things in your sovereign plans there's no question in my mind that every person hearing my voice today has been brought to this place by your hand. So Father, I pray right now that by your Holy Spirit you would stir them. That you would steal out from them their heart of stone and give them a heart that is responsive to you. Lord, we don't want to manipulate anyone's emotions. That's fruitless. We recognize that that which is sown to the flesh reaps only of the flesh. So we pray that Your Spirit would intervene. That You would convict us of our sin, of our self-driven life. That we cannot possibly have a relationship with a holy God as we are. But help us to see, to know, to believe that you have loved us. That you have made a way for us while we were yet sinners. Through the substitutionary death of your Son, taking on Himself all the punishment our sins deserve Father as you bring this to our minds I pray that this would spark a new devotion in those who are already yours and that it would cut to the heart of those who are not that they might be yours even even, Lord, in this moment. Thank you for your grace. The only way we can be saved. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen.